presented by BlackRock. Hey there, it's Playbook Editor Mike DeBonis. Something a little different today to start the week. Playbook Deputy Editor Zach Stanton is here for today's Playbook Daily Briefing. Okay, Zach, the main event this week, it's finally here, the Georgia Senate runoff election. Uh, It's happening Tuesday. Right now, it really feels uh, like a fait accompli. Uh, There's really this this sense that uh, Raphael Warnock uh, has the advantage here. The polls uh, generally uh, show him with a lead, a small lead, but but a consistent lead nonetheless. Uh, We have the predicting the predicted betting market has a the chances of a Warnock victory at 89% to Herschel Walker's 10%. Um, and we've just had the same sort of narrative sort of continue from the general election into the runoff, which is that, you know, Raphael Warnock is running a disciplined campaign and Herschel Walker is uh, is not, <laughs> to put it gently. Um, that he's, you know, the, the, the flaws of his candidacy uh, not only continue, but they seem to expand. Uh, we've seen uh, more more women that he's been in relationships come forward with unflattering details about his personal behavior. And, it, you know, the other thing here is just sort of the political atmosphere and the dynamics regarding the fact that the the majority in the Senate is is settled and the stakes are not quite as high as they were in the last Georgia Senate runoff. Is that right, Zach? I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you noted that the majority isn't at stake at this point, um, which, which may not be something given his recent statements. It's unclear whether or not Herschel Walker himself actually knows that. He had a, an interview the other day that he gave where he suggested that uh, control of the House was still undetermined. It was just the latest in a series of flummoxing remarks from uh, from Herschel Walker. I think the way that everyone here in D.C. sees this going at this point is that it seems like Warnock's to lose at this point, but it's hard to know. And, uh, you know, it could well be that something will happen that will yet surprise us. But, you know, when you look at the dynamics of this race and the drop-off that happened in November, the drop-off between Kemp voters and Walker voters, it's hard to see uh, where, you know, those people that might have held their noses and, you know, they voted for Kemp without hesitation, but, you know, maybe weren't so sure about voting for, for Herschel Walker. It's hard to imagine that they will turn out, especially given that control of the Senate is no longer on the line. Right. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, Brian Kemp. The the one sort of thing that has changed for Herschel Walker since the general election is that Brian Kemp has uh, campaigned for him. Um, he really did keep his distance throughout the uh, the general election. He basically was was content to mind his own business and run against Stacey Abrams. Now that he's won another term, he's gone in for Herschel Walker. So if if Walker wins, one headline will be that you know Brian Kemp may have some serious juice and that this may actually burnish his own sort of uh, political credentials uh, nationally. Can you think of some other takeaways that might uh, pop up if Walker and, you know, sort of shocks the political establishment and wins here? Well, I think one thing that would be a shocking thing to keep in mind and, and something that I think Democrats would have to reckon with, of course, is that you would have two uh, African-American men elected to the Senate or Republicans um, from the South, uh, and that would be a larger contingency of Black senators than Democrats would have uh, if if Warnock were to lose, which is potentially interesting, especially as we've seen 
Now, uh, Trump made inroads with uh, black male voters in 2020. It could well be that the GOP, uh, you know, starts to embrace more candidates of color. And that would be, you know, if, if Walker wins, that would, uh, you know, not be out of the question as a trend. If, if Warnock wins, however, uh, what do you think the headline is? Because I guess my general sense is that the main takeaway, if that happens, is that this is really just breathing room for Joe Biden and for Chuck Schumer, you know, that that in having 51 votes for Democrats in the Senate uh, makes a big difference in terms of committee makeup. Uh, it also, I think, probably is very welcome news for Kamala Harris, um, who will no longer have to sort of be chained to Washington, D.C. Uh, to be there to break uh, the tie if it comes to ties in, in, the, in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could very easily see her, you know, going about the country more and perhaps... Uh, you know, with an eye on, on 2024 or 2028. Yeah. And, and in sort of basic political dynamics in the Senate, you, you know, not being beholden to an in-cycle Joe Manchin is a, a yep. pretty big deal for Democrats. Like Joe Manchin is uh, fully expected, expecting to be running again in 2024. We'll have a tough race. We'll have every incentive to break with uh, Joe Biden and the National Democratic Party. So giving him space to be, you know, that that no vote on on some of these things, you know, not, key nominees, for instance, I think ha- having that that buffer helps a lot. The other thing that occurs to me is just what does it say about Georgia? Mm-hmm. It poses the question, you know, between 2020 and 2022 now, Democratic success and wildly different political environments. Is Georgia now at a place where, say, Virginia was in 2008, where, you know, it was long considered a red state and then a purple state? Is it on its way to becoming a actual blue state? When you run these campaigns, uh, you know, over and over again, you have these runoffs in Georgia where you're actually running like two campaigns for one. I mean, you you build infrastructure, you build experience, you build, you know, political muscle memory that pays off in, in future election cycles. And, you know, you saw it in Nevada this year where the, you know, the the vaunted Harry Reid machine eked out a victory for Catherine Cortez Masto. Is that getting built in Georgia right now? Um, and that's that's one of the things I'm sort of thinking about if, if Warnock can can uh, pull out a victory here. Absolutely. And and Virginia, you know, what one of the things that was intriguing there, of course, was that while it was a purple state, it sort of almost zoomed past being a purple state where it went from red state to blue state in a pretty short time span where you had, you know, still Republican governors elected in Virginia. You were unable to see Republicans winning these statewide federal elections. And you saw sort of at, at that sort of Senate level the nationalization of, of some of those elections. Whereas what you see in Georgia is in many ways kind of the the best argument that Republicans have for Herschel Walker is, you know, trying in some ways to make him sort of a generic Republican. It's not quite a Virginia at, at that tipping point status quite yet, but you can definitely see it inching towards that. Right. And we should note that Virginia t- today has a Republican governor. So even yes. if it <laughs> yeah. even if it yes. is uh, <laughs> on that trajectory, that doesn't mean that it's uh, it's turning into California tomorrow. <laughs> Zach, there's also a big case coming up before the Supreme Court on Wednesday uh, having to do with uh, sort of voting and elections. Uh, tell us about it. So the background here is that Republicans in North Carolina drew congressional districts pretty heavily in their favor. Um, but it was blocked. The, the map was blocked 
by the Democratic majority on the state Supreme Court, uh, which argued that uh, it violated the state constitution. Republicans uh, in the state have filed suit, and the suit is going before the Supreme Court on Wednesday. And their argument is basically that there is not a place for courts in uh, the deciding of these uh, districts, in the deciding of uh, laws pertaining to the election of federal officials. Uh, and their argument is relying on something called the independent state legislature's theory, uh, which basically looks at the Constitution and sees two different critical lines in the Constitution as perhaps arguing that state legislatures uh, are sort of a supreme source of of law when it comes to uh, the election of presidents, of the election of senators and representatives. Um, and what they point to is in Article 1, Section 4, you know, the Constitution says that the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And then later in uh, Article 2, uh, when they are talking about the Electoral College, they say each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, yada, yada, yada. question there is, in saying the legislature thereof, when they refer to a state legislature in the Constitution, do they literally mean just the state legislature, or do they more broadly mean the legislative process? You know, can can we assume that they meant yes? There is, of course, a place for you know judicial review or courts overseeing these laws. Is there a place for maybe the governor in in some instances? Uh, is that part of the legislative process? Uh, if a governor is needed to right. sign laws, is that legislative? Right. So this is essentially go this is going to be a, a, a semantic argument, mm -hmm. and it's a very sort of basic test of, of judicial philosophy, specifically textualism, originalism. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, this notion that the the Constitution uh, is is not to be interpreted; it's basically to be parsed. Um, and you know, w what's the sense uh, you have of you know how the the court is going to come down on this? This is a you know a conservative court, obviously. Those conservative justices each. Uh, subscribe to originalism in some degree, you know, what's what's the sense here? I feel like this is kind of a jump ball, really. Uh, you know, we see uh, many conservative legal scholars coming down against uh, actually the Republicans in this case. Uh, J. Michael Ludig, whom playbook readers will be familiar with, and who I think everyone who doesn't read playbook but is you know, well-versed in politics may remember from the January 6th hearings, is you know sort of a uh, an unimpeachable expert on uh, the legal process and is a steadfast conservative. He filed an amicus brief in this, you know, arguing that of course there is not an independent state legislature uh, doctrine in the Constitution. That, that that basically this is not a legitimate way of looking at the Constitution. You know, he over the weekend uh, gave an interview to the AP uh, in which he described this case as the single most important case on American democracy and for American democracy in the nation's history, uh, which is kind of a breathtaking <laughs> statement coming, That's, coming from someone who is right. not prone to overstatement. Yeah, I can I can think of some Japanese Americans who might uh, speak up for Enri Korematsu, right, right, exactly. but, you know, hey, <laughs> yes, uh, fair. but you know, that, that's pretty big. Yes. Um, that's a big statement. I mean, 
you know, taken to its extreme, if this uh, doctrine were uh, adopted, you know, the fear is that this would give sort of plenary authority to state legislatures to basically overturn federal elections, right? Yes. I mean, is that uh, where, where this ends up? I think that's absolutely where this ends up. I mean, this is sort of the nightmare scenario in some cases. This is a concept I first heard about, actually, when I interviewed Rick Hassan before the 2020 election. And, you know, he noted when the court is looking at laws that decide uh, the governing of presidential elections, is there a place for governors in this process? When, are they included in the state legislature idea? Uh, and, you know, one thing that Rick Hassan uh, noted when I talked to him is that while that specific uh, manifestation of this issue is maybe not something that conservative justices would be on board with, this idea of independent state legislatures um, is actually something that has at least four conservative justices uh, who've said things that are favorable about it, inc including Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, so this will really be interesting to see uh, both how it's argued and uh, I, I, for one, am, am curious to see what the questioning is like on Wednesday. Yeah, absolutely. Appointment uh, argument uh, at the Supreme Court, if, if there ever was one. Uh, last thing that happened over the weekend, uh, the, the DNC met for its annual winter meetings, and the big item of business was the presidential primary process. And the big news out of that was President Biden asking Democratic Party leaders to approve a plan that would upend the uh, process we've come to know and tolerate uh, <laughs> of having Iowa and New Hampshire go first every year, but instead would make uh, South Carolina the first state to hold uh, a party presidential primary. Talk a little bit about this, Zach. I mean, this is this is pretty big news. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The writing was on the wall after Iowa kind of uh, turned into a disaster in, in 2020. But, uh, you know, South Carolina kind of came out of nowhere here. It did, except for the fact that South Carolina was so pivotal in, in making him the Democratic nominee in 2020. And it, it's hard not to see this as influenced quite substantially by that and uh, as, as sort of a... a a Valentine's gift of sorts to, uh, to Jim Clyburn. Now, in in uh, the president's letter to the DNC pushing for this change, he argued effectively that the reason to make South Carolina the first state is that voters of color uh, had been pushed to the back of the primary process, and it was time to give them a louder and earlier voice. But as our own Ryan Lizza wrote on Sunday, sort of an open question if whether moving them to the front of the calendar actually does give Black voters a louder voice in the process. Uh, you know, the last several contested primaries that we've had for, for Democratic presidential candidates, Iowa and New Hampshire have kind of winnowed the field a bit, but South Carolina has been decisive. We saw this in 2020 as Joe Biden earned the nomination after performing fairly mediocrely in uh, Iowa and in New Hampshire and to a lesser extent in Nevada, uh, but really had a blowout victory in South Carolina. You know, we saw this in, in 2016 as sort of the death knell for Bernie Sanders uh, challenge to Hillary Clinton. And certainly we saw this in 2008 when Barack Obama, uh, who had been victorious in Iowa and then lost to Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire, you know, his victory in Iowa really convinced a lot of Black voters in South Carolina that you know this was actually a campaign that could go the distance. And 
his victory in South Carolina was decisive in in helping him get the nomination over over Hillary Clinton. So the way that Ryan thought about this that I think is actually quite compelling is, yes, you move earlier in the process, and yes, there's a lot to be said for that, but it sort of changes the role that South Carolina has played from selecting the nominee to being the place that really winnows the field. Do you see it that way? Right. That sort of rat- ratify. It, it, they're the state that ratifies exactly. rather than sort of selects. And yeah, I think there's something to that. And I th- I think the risk for South Carolina is that it, it could be seen as the, the, the same way that uh, Iowa, New Hampshire came to be seen, which is representing just a piece of the, the Democratic uh, electorate as, you know, vis-a-vis um, a state like excuse me, Zach, for pointing this out, Michigan, that actually has a population that actually very closely mirrors uh, the country as a whole. And uh, not that, you know, South Carolina doesn't have uh, doesn't have that same demographic diversity. But um, it is interesting that Michigan is going to take the place that's of South Carolina as that third or fourth week in to be the sort of ratification state. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure you, that you're you're very much uh, eager to see Michigan play a larger role in our presidential politics. I, I am. You know, suddenly my uh, my urgent ramblings about Oakland County and Macomb County and uh, all these things that earn all the eye rolls in our playbook group chats, uh, suddenly they'll have relevance. <laughs> so, so you guys will be stuck with me uh, and, uh, you know, be stuck listening to Michigan analysis for the next several years. Well, uh, noted Michigander Zach Stanton, thanks for coming on. Uh, be sure. <laughs> thanks for having me. Be sure to subscribe to the Playbook newsletter if you haven't already, politico.com slash playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Mike DeBonis. Thanks for listening. All across the country, people are working hard for their financial freedom. So BlackRock is hard at work, managing the retirement plan assets of over 35 million Americans. From the plains to the coasts, BlackRock helps Americans invest for their future and helps communities thrive. BlackRock, invested in the future of Americans. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal, as of December 31st, 2021. Visit blackrock.com slash invested.